Well, it was one year ago this weekend that we were coming into church and we were telling everybody, hey, we're going to do fist bumps today and elbow bumps. We're not going to shake hands. And we were all kind of chuckling about it. We were laughing because it was awkward and funny. And, and then how many of you know it, it got unfunny after a while? Not, not funny anymore. No fun. Still not funny. Yeah. Amen to that. It's been a year and a lot has changed. And it compelled me to not have any desire to go back and complain or gripe about what has changed or what we have missed out on, but to lean in as a church to the, th- to the things that haven't changed, the things that will never change. And so we started a series last weekend. We're talking about the four purposes of the church. As the people of God, we are always, always, always going to do four things. We're going to gather We're going to grow, we're going to go, and we're going to give. We gather in worship, we grow in discipleship, we go in evangelism, and we give through compassion. It's who we are. It's who Jesus called us to be. And last week, we kicked off this series talking about uh, gathering in worship. And and I just got to say, I love the opportunity to gather with God's people in worship. I, I'm, is anybody besides me excited about Easter? <laughs> Amen. Like, we're down to what, three weeks? Three weeks until Easter. I'm so excited about Easter. In fact, you probably caught there in the announcements, there are four services that we're planning for Easter. And, and for good reason. I want you to know, God's been doing some incredible things in this church, and we want to do four services because we want to make room for more people to be a part of that on Easter Sunday. What I love about Easter is it's one of those days during the calendar year where people feel compelled more than others to go to church. You know, if you got some family members that have rejected you many times, Easter's your best shot. I mean, you know, Easter's your, your best shot to get them to come and to be a part of the service with you for community members. We're going to get the invitations out there. We're going to invite them to come and be a part of what God's doing, and we want to make room for them. And there's something that's so dynamic when the church worships together. To be honest with you, that's the reason I want to have a choir for Easter. Because I want people to see and experience the power of worship. So we're going to fill this stage so that when anyone comes in, they can be swept up in the power of unified worship. It's what we're called to do. That'll never change. And so here's how we're doing the the services. You can see it behind me. We're going to move all of our service times up 30 minutes. But don't worry, if you like coming to the late service, we just moved all of our services up an hour today for daylight savings time. So we're actually just going back a half hour. So it works out to your advantage. Don't worry about it. But we're going to do an 8 o'clock service, a 9.30, 11 a.m., and 12.30 service. And our prayer is that we'll make some more space, that all four of those services can be full and that people can come and experience God's presence together. But today, I want to focus on how we grow. And I want to talk about this thought of discipleship. Discipleship is happening right now. And I don't just mean it's happening because you're sitting in church on Sunday morning. I mean it's happening right now, everywhere, all the time. Because we are created as worshiping beings, Our heart follows our habits. So we're being disciplined and discipled, all of us. How many of you remember what it was like when you used to have to 
<clears throat> plan your week, your weeknights around when your favorite show came on. <clears throat> Not anymore. No, then, then, you could, then you could record it. You know, you, you could have TiVo, and then all of a sudden you could, you could be a free man, and you could come home and watch it late. You didn't miss anything. But not anymore. <clears throat> you don't even have to wait till next week for the next episode because now we got Netflix, right? Now we got Hulu. We can, we can binge watch the whole season in one setting. <clears throat> I mean, why, why wait till next Tuesday night for it to come on? Just wait seven seconds. It's coming. And what we're, we're discipled now. We're conditioned to kind of expect. <clears throat> I mean, when a show doesn't, when I watch a show and then there's not another one, that I'm like, What? You mean I got to wait like seven days? What is that? Why? I'm being discipled by my technology. So the question is not if you're being discipled. The question is who are you being discipled by? And what are you being discipled in? I want to talk for a few moments about what it looks like to be a disciple specifically of Christ in the church. And for us, discipleship begins for a believer when you make a conscious decision to begin to follow Jesus. When you decide, I'm going to, I'm going to follow and pursue Jesus Christ as the Lord, as the leader of my life. And it's not a decision that you're going to begin to impersonate Christ or impersonate other Christians, but it's a transformation. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become New and supernaturally, it happens the moment you say yes to Jesus, but on the outside and the natural, it's a process of transformation. Discipleship. I had a text message from one of the guys in my life group just this week on Friday. He sent me a text message and it said in the, mess, in the message, he's, he's doing the fast as well as what Kevin was talking about. He said, I've been addicted to a lot of things in my life, but I've never been this addicted to God before. Thank you, friend. Isn't that awesome? That's discipleship. So if we're going to talk about discipleship, we've got we to go right to Matthew chapter 28. Because Matthew 28 is, is the Rosetta Stone. It's the key verse that really unlocks our understanding of this calling. Speaking of nothing's changed, as you might be able to tell, I'm still battling this this allergy cough. So <laughs> early in the earlier service, I almost started laughing because every time I heard that voice on the video say, nothing's changed. I coughed. Nothing. I was like, shut up. <clears throat> Some change is good, but I'm going to press through it anyway. I'm glad you're here. I'm not going to get you sick. It's allergies. Did you find Matthew 28? All right. Matthew chapter 28. Here's what it says in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given over to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Church, this is our assignment. This is our mission. And I know some of you, you, you know that. And you're, nodding, you're nodding with me. And when I said Matthew 28, you started quoting it in your mind. This is not revelation to you. 
It's reiteration, but understand how important this is. Even if you've heard this a hundred times before, lean in with your heart today because I believe this is so critical that the church locks in on the purpose of discipleship. And I'm saying it with this emphasis because I know something to be true. People can drift. Churches can drift. I've been in those churches. This used to be one of those churches. And it's easy for us to, to just lose sight of the mission. But we're called to discipleship. And we have to be careful that we don't let circumstances that we're facing cause us to drift away from that call. Let me give you an example. I, I read recently a mission statement from a major university. If I said the name, you'd all know the name of this university. This was the mission statement when it was founded. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the motto, the mission statement of this university. Founded in 1936, this university only employed Christian professors. They emphasized character above all else. They rooted all their policies and their practices in having a Christian worldview. It was their foundation. What's amazing about that mission statement is that it's not the mission statement of Dallas Theological Seminary. It's not the mission statement of Wheaton College or University of Valley Forge or, or CBC. That is the mission statement of Harvard University. Now, if you know anything about Harvard, they've drifted. That is not their focus today. <clears throat> In fact, about the only thing about Harvard that suggests that it's a Christian school today is the insignia on the diploma. If you graduate from Harvard, it has the words on it, Christo et Ecclesia, which means truth, and it's around the word veritas. So it means truth for Christ and the church. In fact, Harvard had drifted so far from their foundation that there were pastors up in the northeast in the New England region that were concerned. And they were so concerned that they gathered together and they decided they were going to start a new university. They were going to start a new college that would be built on this foundation. And they determined that they're not just going to let Veritas, truth, be their motto. Their motto would be Lux et Veritas, light and truth. Because they were committed to walk in the light and stay committed to the truth. And so, in 1917, Yale University was started. And that was their motto. And today, of course, neither Yale nor Harvard are living up to the intended desires of their founding fathers. And I just say that because I wonder today if Jesus looks out at the landscape of churches and he sees the same thing. Have we drifted from our mission that was spelled out so clearly, that was spelled out so authoritatively? He said, all power, all authority is given unto me. Therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations. 
I read an article recently by Jonas Sostrom. He's a pastor in America, but he grew up in Sweden. He was a part of the Swedish Pentecostal movement. And this was his perception of the churches in America. He said, in America, we have leadership conferences. We have workshops. We have endless books on how to help people align into vision statements. We do a great job of teaching people business models. But looking out at our own congregants, many of them do not know how to spend 15 minutes alone with Jesus. There's a lot of conversation about leadership and training and developing people. Can I tell you today, developing people and leaders is not the same as making disciples. Developing a leader is not the same thing as developing a lover of God. And that's where it has to begin. It begins with an awakening of of love for the God of our salvation. I love the picture of discipleship in Exodus chapter 33. There's a verse that describes Moses' relationship with God. And it's it's been envied by many a Christian who have read it. Here's what it says in in Exodus 33, 11 about Moses. It says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. As one speaks to a friend. How many of you, you would say, you know what, my my devotion this morning didn't quite go like that. (laughs) He spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. He had an intimate relationship with God. But look at the rest of the verse. It says, then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, the son of Nun, did not leave the tent. When I read that, it's no wonder to me that Joshua became the next leader of the nation of Israel. It's no wonder that though Moses delivered them out of bondage, he couldn't get them into the promised land, but Joshua did. Joshua led the children of Israel into their promised land. It doesn't surprise me at all because what we're looking at right here is a picture of discipleship. Moses had a relationship that was so personal and intimate with God, but he didn't keep it to himself. He invited Joshua to come in. He invited him to be in the room to say, look, this is what it looks like. This is what it's like to talk to God face to face like a friend. This is what it is to know how to lead the nation. Here's where I get my download from heaven. This is how God speaks to me. And Joshua would sit there and watch these moments. And then Moses would go back to the camp. And Joshua stayed in the tent. And I can't help but think he gave it a try a few times. How about you? He thought, I think I'm. I'm going to go put my knees where Moses' knees were. I'm going to fold my hands like Moses' hands were. I'm going to try to do what Moses did so I can have a relationship with God like Moses had. That's discipleship. Discipleship happens in the context of relationships. If you're watching online, somebody ought to put that in the chat. Discipleship happens in the context of of relationships. I love the story of Joshua years later. I preached about this a few weeks ago. I'm just going to mention the verse. In Joshua 24, verse 15, he's now at the end of his life. And he says to the nation of Israel, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It was a, it was a discipleship moment. He was saying, He didn't take a vote. He didn't say, hey, kids, what do you think? No, no, no. He said, as for me 
and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But the reason I mention that is because I want you to see the response of the people. When, when Joshua said that, their hearts were cut. They felt conviction. And here's their response in verse 16 of Joshua 24. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. While Joshua says, who are you going to serve? They said, we're not going to forsake the Lord. While Joshua says, well, me and my house, they said, well, me and my house too. But then you turn the Bible a couple pages over to the book of Judges, chapter 2 and verse 10, and we have this commentary about those people. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They didn't forget God. They forsook God. And what I want to say to you is that when you don't share your faith with your family, you're forsaking the work that God has done in your life. Parents, it begins for us. That's the primary relationship. God has called us to be priests of our own home. And we have a responsibility to pass on our faith to our children. But listen, outside of your immediate family, there are other relationships that God has put in your life, every one of us, for the sole purpose of his mission. Go with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at Jesus. He's our ultimate example. I want you to see what, what Jesus did in making disciples. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Jesus never said, if you want to be my disciple, attend my seminar. Jesus changed their lives and consequentially the world with two words, follow me. Follow me. Now, we understand that when it comes to our salvation, we follow Jesus alone because he is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through him, John 14, 6. But understand what's happening in the natural because they're not looking at Jesus, the Savior of the world. What's happening in the natural is a man in the flesh is speaking to other men and he's inviting them to be disciples. He's inviting them to to learn from him. And that's, that's what you have to understand about discipleship. Not only does it happen in the context of relationship, but secondly, discipleship begins with an invitation to experience life together. That's where it begins. It begins with somebody opening their own life, their own time, their own calendar up to somebody else and saying, you can be a part of my life. When Andrew first met Jesus, the question that he asked him was, where are you staying? And I love Jesus' response. 
He said, come and see. Come and see. That, that's an invitation to say, you, you, you can be a part of this story. <clears throat> I'm not just going to tell you my address. I'm not just going to give you my business card. If you're interested, then come on. Come and see. When Paul was discipling, he's the greatest missionary that ever lived. When the apostle Paul was discipling believers, he didn't say, hey, follow Jesus. Although Jesus is the only way to be saved, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Because Jesus had already been ascended back to the Father. Jesus wasn't here. And Paul knew people need to see a person before they can grab a hold of a, of a truth. I need to know what this looks like. Paul said, you can follow me as I follow Christ. And when he was raising up Timothy, a young pastor in the ministry, Paul gave him similar words of encouragement. But listen, here, here's what discipleship is. Keep it real, real simple. It's showing people how you live, and it's sharing what you know. That's discipleship. It's showing what you, how you live and sharing what you know. That's what Paul did. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. And then he taught them the truth of God's word. And so when he wrote to Timothy, he's encouraging him along the same lines. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 12, <clears throat> he tells him, he says, Don't let anyone look down on you. Because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In other words, he's saying, don't make excuses for what you don't have. Well, you don't have age. You know, the scripture says with gray hair comes wisdom. Amen? Two times? Yeah. So he didn't have that going for him. But Paul was saying, don't make excuses for what you don't have. You're still called to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, for some of you, you know, nobody's called you young in a long time. You don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about that. But fill in the blank. What are the excuses that we would make? Don't let anyone despise you because you are not a Bible scholar. <clears throat> don't let anyone despise you because you haven't been saved for very long. Don't let anyone despise you because you're not a great communicator or because you don't have an influential position. Paul was saying, don't make any excuses for what you don't have. Show people how you live. Be an example with the way you live, your faith, your love, your conduct, your purity, your speech. And then in the next verse, he adds this, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Now he's talking to Timothy, who's a pastor, but we understand the emphasis of what he's saying is don't just show them how you live, tell them what you know. Make sure when you come together, this is what discipleship looks like. Show people how you live and tell people what you know. And can I just say one of the things I love about being a part of the church is that church is like my favorite day in kindergarten. It's show and tell. How many of you love show and tell? That's what, the, that's what church is all about. That's what it's been from the very beginning. You go back to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church. 120 are praying in the upper room. The Spirit of God is poured out, manifesting in signs, and one of, <clears throat> one of them being that they're all speaking in unknown tongues. A crowd gathers around and hears them. Peter gets up and begins to preach. It's show and tell. 
People's eyes are bugged out. What is going on? What is happening here? And then the gospel begins to go forth. He proclaims the truth. And I love what he says in verse 33 of Acts 2. He's midstream in his sermon, and he says this, exalted to the right hand of God, he, speaking of Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. It's show and tell. He said, what you're experiencing, what you're seeing, let me, let me tell you the truth about it. See, God moves powerfully in our public gatherings. And I thank God for that. I, in fact, I can't say enough about how much confidence I have in what God can do in a meeting like this. I put a lot of faith. One of our core values is an atmosphere of faith. We want to come and we want to create an expectation that nothing is impossible when we gather together. But I want you to notice what the response of the church was to that show and tell meeting. It's down in verse 41. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How many of you think that's a good day at church? Pretty good day. But look down in verse 46. It says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. So the the activity that happens beyond the worship gathering, that's where the relationships are formed. Thank God for what he can do in this moment. But when it comes to relationship, I mean, come on, let's be honest. You're not really building a relationship by staring at the back of somebody's head for an hour. And discipleship happens in the context of relationship. So as amazing as the service was, 3,000 people got saved. What the church did in response to that is crucial. What the church did in response to that is they began to meet daily in homes, breaking bread together, fellowshipping, talking about the word that the apostles had taught. And this is God's pattern for discipleship. When Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, he, he didn't have a, a program that he was, a 12-step plan that he was starting. He didn't have a, a class that he wanted the world to take. His strategy for reaching the world was simple. Each one, reach one. That's it. Each one, reach one. If you can just, if you can just share with somebody how you live and tell them what you know, and their life can be changed, and then they can do the same thing, and their life can be changed. How many of you understand, if, if we did that, as a church, by this summer, we, we would we'd be, out of, we'd be completely out of space. I'd have to preach like eight times on, on Sunday morning. And I'm hacking and coughing through the third one. So I'm not saying I want to do that. <laughs> I'm not saying I want to preach eight times. But you can see really quickly how even the model that we have for church. And I love church. I'm not, I'm not watering down the power of these gatherings. But we can see how this model is not scalable with the Great Commission. If every child of God got serious about leading someone else into a relationship with Jesus, there's no way we could keep up. We'd build a new building and then we'd be out of space before 
We got to have service in it. But this is the genius of the Great Commission that Jesus is calling us, each one, reach one. I want to invite the worship team to come back up here and and I want to give a very practical challenge because I believe maybe some of you, this is your response to the sermon today. Not everybody, but for some of you, this needs to be your response. In two weeks, we're going to be making available our materials for our life groups. Our life groups are just small groups of people that gather in homes or in offices And they have a conversation based on the word of God. We've done a lot of the hard work already. Pastor Chris and I put together six conversations around these unchanging truths of the church. For some of you, I believe that God's calling you to to be a life group leader. So you know what? I want to... I want to be a discipler. I don't have all the answers. I don't profess to be the sage from the stage. I'm not going to be the guru in the group, but I'll show how I live, and I'll share what I know. And so in a few weeks, we're going to put that material in your hands, and I want some of you to pray today about potentially becoming a life group leader, saying, I'm going to make some space in my heart and in my calendar for other people to gather and to, to worship and to talk about our faith to share our experiences with each other to build fellowship I believe God wants some of you to step into this maybe for the first time God wants to build his kingdom that way yeah 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost but it was when they started meeting together that the Bible says God added to their number daily those who were being saved. 